Junior Doctors Corner, the podcast that helps medical students and junior doctors like yourself not only survive but thrive in your careers. We cover topics including doctor well-being, career, and life outside of medicine. My name is Dana and I am your host for this podcast. Are you ready for a healthy dose of support, motivation, and inspiration? Then let's start this episode stack. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode. This one was recorded on IGTV Live or Instagram Story Live. I thought it'd be great to release it on the podcast officially, so this is a slightly more concise version. Dr. Raylia Liu is a fertility specialist down in Melbourne. She has some very valuable insights into IVF, obviously, and egg freezing. And she also has some very wise words, regardless of whether you're a medical student or uh, an intern or registrar level. This episode is worth a listen, uh, particularly if you haven't thought about starting a family or you are thinking about starting a family. Check this episode out. Hi, Dr. Aurelia Liu. Thank you so much for joining me on Junior Doctors Corner. Well, thank you for having me. So we're just going to kick things off um, just in case there are, um, you know, listeners here who haven't had the opportunity or the pleasure to get to know you so far. Can you please tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. So I'm Dr. Raylia Liu. I'm a CREI fertility subspecialist, which means in terms of my career pathway that I started off doing obsingani and subsequently subspecialized in reproductive endocrinology and infertility for a further three years of training and a further set of exams to attain my subspecialty from Ranscog. And my day-to-day life, the bread and butter of my job is helping women and couples overcome infertility to have families. And I love my job. I love what I do. That's great. And um, also, I think in addition to being a fertility specialist, you also um, you know, have a podcast yourself as well. I do. My podcast is Knocked Up, which is about fertility and women's health. And I started it with my very good friend, Geordie Morrison, who's not medical, in order to really break down topics in a way that's really easy for the non-medical woman and man, if they're interested, um, to understand about fertility, which can get really complicated, especially with all the medical jargon. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, it, it is a pretty handy resource and I really like that you break down a lot of things, you know, explaining um, the really common, you know, questions that people have. And unfortunately, um, at least when I went through medical school, I felt like infertility was a subject that was just brushed over in just one lecture and there isn't enough back when I did it. I I felt like I didn't understand it enough. And when my patients come to me in um, GP land, they tend to have to just go, well, just refer me to the specialist and I have to be apologetic and go, I'm sorry, I only understand this much and there's actually this much more that the specialist knows. So um, it's great that you're providing that resource. Because this is something, family planning is something that a lot of people do in especially a lot of other industries. So, for example, like Google employees have been offered to do egg freezing and things like that. But it's not something that we commonly 
uh, or openly talk about in medicine, even though it is very important and relevant because it takes so long to train and it's so intense to study and work at the same time to become a specialist. So why is it important for junior doctors and, you know, interns or even medical students to start thinking about family planning? Look, I, I can say that in my practice, doctors, uh, you know, kind of disproportionately uh, affected by infertility just for those reasons that you've mentioned, the fact that often family is not something that is top of the agenda, not necessarily because it's not what somebody wants and often even not because they're even, you know, in a, not in a position to have a baby. When you look at the kind of factors involved, they might have a partner, you know, but there's this perception that you have to have done everything and, and lined up all your ducks before you have children in medicine. At least I think there's a lot of people who feel that's true. There's still a lot of discrimination against women in medicine, and I certainly have felt that personally when I had my children as a registrar, that it was, you know, frowned upon to break your training to have a baby. And, you know, I, I found that when I did have my children as a registrar that I did have to fight for good rotations that would have come naturally had I not had my children. And I found that I had to fight for things like maternity leave, which is not, and even long service leave, which is not easy to get when you're on a rolling one-year contract, which is still very prevalent in medicine. So, you know, not everyone can plan a pregnancy you know, that they decide I'm going to be pregnant this month and it happens. Some people are very lucky and they do that, do, do that. But, you know, to, to plan a pregnancy to fall, you know, at a certain time in a clinical year is not how the world works in human biology. Yeah. So, you know, that, that is um, something that I think there's still a lot of room for reform and system reform to make it easier, particularly for women, because we're the ones who need to be pregnant, um, to have children without, being you know really railroaded in career progress so I think that that's something that you know I think is should be a focus for for this generation uh, you know my my age bracket as you know kind of mentors as well not forgetting about oh it's all behind me doesn't affect me anymore so I won't worry about it I think it's a duty that we all have to our junior doctors to try and reform that system and make it more family friendly you mentioned um, it is very challenging to work around the roster and even fight for maternity leave, things like that. What other uh, important aspects must a junior doctor consider before even trying for pregnancy when it comes to family planning? Well, look, I think, you know, while there's still a lot of barriers and I think it is difficult, I think it's difficult no matter when you have a baby and there are, you know, pros and cons of having a baby at every different age. I think we're perfectionists by personality as doctors quite often and we're looking for the perfect time to interrupt things and to have a family. I think something that I would say was a really common theme from all the doctors that I was talking to about, you know, this in the lead up to this podcast is that there is no perfect or right time to interrupt medical training and have a family. And the best mm -hmm. advice that I really feel that most people give is have a family when you want to have a family and figure out subsequently how to fit the medical career around the family. So for those of us who are, you know, in a relationship and putting off having babies, not because of our circumstances, but because we're worried about medical training or worried about how we're going to sit an exam with a baby or how we're going to work a roster with a baby, what I would say is that is 
very difficult. Um, and obviously how we're going to have maternity leave with a baby, how we're going to be financially stable if we don't have maternity leave with a baby. So, look, these are all really important questions. But what I would say is that when people do decide to bite the bullet and have a baby, either as a you know, medical student or as a registrar, you know, in the training system or as a consultant, there are challenges at every single stage. Like one of the mums I was chatting to was saying, you know, she had no idea that if you were a GP on a contract, you just don't get any maternity leave, not mm-hmm. even from the government. Yeah. And, you know, that's difficult. That makes it, that forces you back to work quite quickly. Whereas at least when you're a registrar in the hospital system, if you happen to be lucky enough to have your child in that right time when you're in contract, <laughs> um, then you do. And, you know, I would say that for all the things that are bad about the public hospital system, there are some, in, hopefully in good hospitals, there are infrastructure supports that can be called on when you do come back. Um, I know at the women's hospital where I'm a consultant, you know, there's a, a creche in the hospital, which is terrific, you know. So there's there are hospitals that are better than others at supporting parenthood. I think... My advice would be have your babies when you want to have your babies and don't put off having your babies because you think it's going to be a hell of a lot easier later. I think it never is, um, is the truth. (laughs) So, um, and look, I would say, although it's a bit of a grating thing to say, and I help plenty of people in different circumstances to this, but I would say if you can have your children before fertility does decline from a, a biology perspective, if it's possible to complete your family by 35, that is the ideal because, you know, then you're less likely to need assistance. You know, I help plenty of people get pregnant who have problems who are younger. So, you know, age is not the only factor with fertility. And, you know, 50% of fertility has a male factor, whether that's the main reason or just part of the reason. Uh, So, you know, women should not carry, and they certainly don't from a biological perspective, carry the full burden of fertility either. I think society still expects women to take leave to have babies and look after them. I certainly, I was talking to my husband, I said to him, did anyone ever tell you or ask you who was looking after your child when you came back to work with a a newborn? And he was like, what? (laughs) Well, that's a question I got asked, you know. So there there are these, these perceptions that, you know, women can, you know, should or can be behaving in certain ways um, and you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. If you if you take time out, you're not committed to career. If you come back to work, well, you know, who's looking after your baby? I mean, you know, there's no way for the woman to be the heroine in this scenario. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with you. We really do, as female doctors, face, you know, some extra challenges um, compared to our male counterparts. And I mean, also, interestingly, even if our male partners who are also doctors, if they wanted to take time off to look after kids instead, there's no such thing as paternity leave, unfortunately, not in any way. That's right. There isn't. There's there's not an equity of paternity leave. And, you know, the fact that we don't have paternity leave is actually, you know, reinforcing this patriarchal view that women need to be the carers and there is no option um, for their partners, even if they were willing to share the load as well. And I also believe that there's a flow-on effect because if it is always the female who is in part-time training, who is in the main carer role that isn't fairly shared, 
then she's also going to be unrepresented or underrepresented in leadership roles in organisations because, you know, you can't do everything all at once. And um, so I think then you have flow-on effects that, you know, you don't get that feminine perspective at leadership level, um, which is a shame. So I received a a number of messages um, and comments to answer the question around, you know, when's a good time, which you have already covered. But say if uh, a junior doctor did decide, okay, I'm going to go ahead and do it now, what's the collective wisdom from the medical mums group? Do you guys have any particular advice or tips if a particular junior doctor wants to work full time and have a child? Is that possible? You know, like, is there some magic trick that we don't know? about so look I think there there is and you know I can tell you I've done that before myself I took a year off for each of my children for maternity leave and in that time I actually worked on my PhD so you know I I was doing something to further my career but I was also spending time in in a job that was less of a you know all hours job so you know that you can always you know invest in your career in other ways and think outside the square whether that's thinking about something like a master's or a PhD that you can potentially do on your own time or even just a research project that might further your career in a, in a certain direction or, or teach you new skills. So that would be mm-hmm. one piece of advice. Look, in terms of coming back to work, I think having a supportive partner is something that's really important and having a support network. Um, you know, there's that kind of old adage that takes a village to raise a child, and I know that sounds a bit corny, but you need your support network. You need, I, I personally had my parents helping me a lot. Um, you know, childcare is not a dirty word. I outsource things like cleaning. I outsource things like childcare to a creche. And, you know, I've had various nannies over the time um, to help. And, you know, some people have family and can rely solely on family. But if you don't have family, it doesn't mean that you can't have support. Mm-hmm. So I think building your support, knowing your rights, investigating mm-hmm. your rights in terms of the AMA. You probably hear some of my my little ones behind me trying to get involved in the podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, so knowing your rights, knowing your entitlements, that's really important because you unfortunately in this world can't rely on your hospital not to do the wrong thing by you. Making sure mm-hmm. that you have your contract in writing at, at every time that it is renewed and if there, if you do, if you are lucky enough to have normal fertility and you don't have delayed conception and you have some degree of control over when you will conceive, um, you know, trying to do that in a time where you are in contract so that you don't um, fall into that out of contract, no maternity leave situation is in, in an ideal world, you know, good to do. Although, you know, I mm-hmm. premise that with the fact that you can't decide which month you're going to get pregnant. You know, people... I always talk to my patients that, you know, the natural fecundity, the chance of pregnancy every month we try, even if we're young and fertile, is about one in five. So, you know, it's a joke to think you can time when you're going to get pregnant. And, you know, people have tragedies in their lives. You know, for every woman that has a baby, you know, she's probably had a miscarriage. It's the same women who have babies who lose babies and who have, um, you know, difficulties. So, you know, these are things that are also very difficult I personally had several miscarriages when I was trying to have my babies and it happens and sometimes you have to deal with it at work, which is also very Mm. difficult. And, you know, we have these issues in medicine that we always put the career first and we put our patients first and we're kind of trained to do that. And to some degree, you know, some of that is very good. You know, we don't have absenteeism. 
you know, you'll have doctors. I remember when COVID struck, there was this GP who came to work with a cold and, you know, it, t- it turned out to be COVID. I don't know if you remember that in Melbourne. And, you know, and the newspaper just was like really critical of him, mm-hmm. which I understand. Again, yeah. But can I tell you how many times I've been really sick and gone to work just because there was no one to cover and you didn't want to let the, te- the team down? Okay, it wasn't COVID. But, you know, that's the culture in medicines. You know, it would be so much easier to have a family in medicine if we could really concentrate on the systemic elements, making sure that there you know, are people to cover you, that you don't have to organise your own cover, making sure that we have adequate staffing in hospitals so that the hospital is not desperate and likely to do the wrong thing by their junior staff because they're desperate to have cover. Yeah, absolutely. Now um, let's dive into the IVF and egg freezing kind of stuff because I know that's your specialty. So can you tell us um, a bit about egg freezing, you know, what's the process involved? So, um, yeah, do, do junior doctors have to take time off work for it? You know, can you please take us through step by step? Sure. So, look, egg freezing is different for different people because we've all got our own intrinsic ovarian reserves. So to freeze a good number of eggs, some people need to do it once and some people need to do it a couple of times over a couple of menstrual cycles. So understanding IVF, you know, one of the things that I take kind of patients back to and explaining to doctors as well is that the the baseline is the menstrual cycle and that's kind of what we superimpose our changes and our physiological kind of um, tweaks on. So in a menstrual cycle, there's a cohort of follicles that start to compete so that one of them eventually in a natural cycle, usually one, becomes the dominant egg that ovulates. And there's a group of these follicles. And if you've got a small ovary, that group might not be so many. And if you've got a a large ovary, like if you're blessed with a polycystic ovary, for example, you know, you might have, um, you know, quite a lot. I did five egg collections today for my patients. And I collected uh, for my patient with the lowest number of eggs, four eggs. And for my patient with the highest number of eggs, 54 eggs. So, you know, that's the same doctor with the same skill set. You know, different ovaries can do different things. Some are like a little Toyota Corolla and some are like a Ferrari. And it is completely genetic. It's completely genetic. So there's a bit of cycle-to-cycle variation, but you're never going to get your Toyota Corolla to zoom like a Ferrari. It's just not going to happen. So, you know, someone with a smaller ovary can be super fertile. You know, there are people around there, they don't have big ovaries, got little petite, lovely fertile ovaries and get pregnant at the drop of a hat. But for egg freezing, it's an advantage to have a high egg count. And the younger you are when you freeze your eggs, the better your egg count because we're born with all the eggs we're ever going to have and they deplete over our lifetime. So if you are someone with a lower egg count, you know, my, my hint would be if you want to freeze your eggs, freeze them younger because A, you'll get more. It'll be more cost effective. It'll be more effective full stop because the eggs will be younger with better pregnancy potential and you'll have to do fewer cycles to get your desired number of eggs. And I recommend freezing about 20 to 30. Now, in terms of what that takes, we all know that ovulation generally happens in the middle of that natural cycle. That's how long it takes an egg to ripen and mature. When we do IVF or egg freezing, we start to change the hormonal balance from the very beginning of the cycle, usually started with a menstrual period using follicle-stimulating hormone and often with egg freezing to keep it safe, we also use what's called a GnRH um, antagonist, which is just a medication to stop the ovulation surge until we're ready 
to go and get those eggs. But the time frame is the same as a natural ovulation. It takes about two weeks for eggs to ripen. Then when we want to do an egg collection, we do it under conscious sedation, but it is an anesthetic and you definitely definitely need that day off work. However, during that two weeks approximately lead up time to the egg collection, you know, it's possible to work. You feel generally very well. You, know, you might feel a little bit hormonal. They might shed, shed a few more tears watching a movie like The Notebook, but you're not going to be insane or crazy or unable to function or anything like that. Most of the medications you're self-administering at home and it actually is quite easy to do once you learn how. And you do need to come for some monitoring appointments, usually two or three times during that two-week period and it's generally first thing in the morning. So, you know, it is possible as a junior doctor Although, you know, you might need to have um, a couple of sick days or you might need to tell people at work that you've got a personal appointment, you're going to have a late start. But it is generally possible to work through that time. Um, The day of the egg collection is a must to have completely off work and the day after the egg collection I would strongly recommend, you know, having off work. Although I have spoken to junior doctors back on the wards the day after an egg collection on more occasions than I care to admit. Um, but um, it is possible. You're pretty well the day after an egg collection, but personally, if you can, if you can, I would recommend having that off. So the whole period of time of an egg free cycle is about two weeks, and I would say it's very doable to um, work through that, particularly if you have, you know, kind of rosters that let you attend appointments. Once the eggs are collected and frozen, are they stored at your facility or what happens after that? Yeah, so look, when wherever you freeze your eggs, you know, it'll be a little bit different. You know, the way I do it in my workplaces, I use Melbourne IVF as my lab and my patients' eggs are stored at Melbourne IVF um, at the lab and there's all of these backup kind of generators and all kinds of different um, safety plans to ensure the eggs are safe. And they can stay frozen for years. You know, in Victoria, we've got legislation around that. But from a biological perspective, the eggs can be frozen for, you know, an indefinite amount of time. And from their perspective, the day they come out of the freezer is the same day they went in. So if you use your eggs and you freeze them, say, when you're 30 and you come back to use them when you're 40, your pregnancy rates are going to be of your 30-year-old self. And um, that's the point of egg freezing. Right. Wow. How much does it cost? Sort of. I know it, it can vary from specialist to specialist, but just to give um, doctors some rough idea so that they can start saving up if they want to go ahead and do egg freezing now rather than wait later. Main thing about egg freezing, if it's elective, and egg freezing is elective unless there's a really strong argument for Medicare for it. Like if you had severe endometriosis, um, you know, you can argue that egg freezing is of a medical indication that there is pre-existing infertility but or if you're about to have cancer treatment for example you know you may be perfectly your ovaries may be perfectly healthy but you're about to have chemo you know then definitely egg freezing is medically medicare eligible and, and you know a medical freeze but most egg freezing if you are not ready to have a baby and you're trying to create a resource you know in case your future self needs to call in it one day is considered elective which means medicare doesn't contribute it also means the pharmaceutical benefit scheme doesn't contribute and a lot of people don't um, understand or are shocked to learn that the cost of drugs use in every ivf cycle is about two and a half to three thousand dollars just for the medications so the cost of egg freezing is roughly 
between five and ten thousand dollars, I would say, around different clinics across Australia. And it does vary. The drug regime would vary and the cost would vary with that. Um, and different facilities and things like hospital bed fees would vary from location to location and anesthetist fees and things like that. So I'd say globally, if you look at everything, the drugs, the lab, the science, your doctor, your anesthetic, your hospital admission, everything, I would say that, you know, it would range between five and 10 and probably about seven would be average. Wow. So it is possible for a junior doctor who is fit and healthy, doesn't have any, you know, medical indications to still go ahead and say, I, you know, want to set some eggs aside because I'm going to pursue, say, a surgical career. It's going to take a lot of time and um, I haven't found a partner yet, but I do know that I want to have children. I, you know, they can pay roughly $10,000 to have their eggs set aside. That's right. And look, the thing is, in my practice, it's more like seven, but that's about what it costs. In terms of reasons, though, you know, I, I would encourage especially female doctors, but, you know, also, you know, all, all people, you know, to understand that IVF is not a panacea and that some people will freeze their eggs and come to use them and it won't work. I'm lucky in that, you know, in my practice so far, you know, I've had a real research interest in egg freezing. I've been working on it, you know, in, in quite a lot of spheres from a research perspective for about six years. Um, at Melbourne Uni and at the Women's Hospital and privately. And, you know, I would say that most of my patients who've returned to use their frozen eggs, touch wood, have been successful in having babies. Not all, but most. And I would also say that what we're learning is that as more women learn about egg freezing and as the technology is, you know, considered, you know, more mainstream or less experimental, women are starting to think about it at a younger age and the eggs they put aside are certainly of better quality and more numerous women are being counseled realistically to put enough eggs away so that it's a really good resource um, but I would also say the only guarantee you can definitely have a child is to have one and I would consider egg freezing as a plan b not a plan a in a even in you know kind of a circumstance of a surgical career I think it's a great investment if you are unable to have a baby and you don't see in your immediate future a way that you would have a baby I think it's a great thing to do for yourself. It's a gift that you give yourself of further opportunities for the future. But I certainly wouldn't encourage any of my patients or my friends or my colleagues or anyone really to rely on egg freezing as their plan A. Right. Okay. That's really great advice. Thank you. Um, now, what happens after, um, say, you know, a junior doctor's decided to freeze their eggs, but they ended up falling pregnant naturally and, you know, conceiving uh, naturally and felt like they've completed their family. You know, what happens to those, those eggs? Is it legal, ethical to, you know, discard or destroy them or can they be donated? And what, yeah, what happens? great question. So, look, I think, you know, there are, there are three pathways for eggs if you're not going to use them yourself. I would encourage everyone to hang on to their eggs until they're 100% sure they've completed their family, as you say. But, you know, there's the pathway of discarding them if you wish and letting them go. Think of them like any other cell in the human body, you know, that by themselves they can't make a baby. And it's actually, I guess, I think probably less ethically fraught and less emotional to let eggs go than to let embryos go. So mm. that is certainly an option. Some may feel that they can donate them to others. And if they can donate them to others, I think it's an amazing and beautiful thing to do. 
There are so many women who need a donor egg who struggle to find a donor. And I think that, you know, altruistic egg donation from women who do freeze their eggs to help other women is a beautiful thing. You have to feel comfortable. In Australia, you can't do it anonymously. In Victoria, you have to go on a register to be a donor, whether you're a sperm donor or an egg donor. And that's just because historically, you know, we've had a society where values have shifted and changed. It used to be that adoption and sperm donation were um, anonymous and there mm-hmm. were some children conceived, both of, of, of sperm donation but also children who were adopted and weren't told they were adopted and there were no records and they couldn't have any way of tracing their way back to find a connection to, you know, their birth families and they felt badly done by because of that. In countries where you can donate sperm and eggs anonymously and, you know, specifically also in countries where it's commercial and you can be paid to do it, there's no shortage of egg donors. But in Australia there's a real shortage of egg donors because anyone who's gone through egg freezing or IVF knows that it's not a walk in the park, although it's much better than it used to be in terms of the drugs and the management being much less of a whirlwind and of a roller coaster emotionally and physically than it used to be um, with modern medicine. But it's still quite a big deal to do that and there's not a whole lot of people putting their hand up to do it for a stranger that they don't know without any commercial remuneration and and going on a register and being non-anonymous. So that's the issue. So that you can donate your eggs. You will always have somebody who wants them badly and, you know, it's a beautiful thing to help someone else have a family. In terms of other options, you can donate to research if there happens to be ongoing research with the OA site. An example at the moment, which you might have heard of in the media, is there's a bit of research going into mitochondrial transfer that involves oocytes. So there are some people who have terrible mitochondrial diseases and as I'm sure all the junior doctors in your audience will know, the mitochondria has its own genome and separate from the nuclear genome, separate from the DNA in the chromosomes um, that we carry. And so it's possible to actually transplant the nucleus from a, um, a cell so that the, the main DNA comes from, you know, kind of the, the um, egg and the sperm, the spindles and the, the nucleus of the early embryo, you can actually transplant that and there's a lot of research that has been done in the UK and that, you know, it's been calls to do it here to put it into somebody else's egg so that, that egg has had the nucleus taken out and the spindles taken out, so all the chromosomes taken out the new nucleus is, is replaced into the egg that has the cytoplasm with normal mitochondria. So that's an example, for example, of, you know, a, one avenue of research that could be um, forwarded with donated egg. So for junior doctors who do decide to go through the process of um, egg freezing while still trying to work, obviously you mentioned not to work on the day of the actual collection, um, and you also mentioned some mood changes. Are there any other things that they should expect? You know, is it painful? Look, most people do cruise through egg freezing quite easily without too many signs and symptoms. You might feel a little bit of bloating. You might be more fluid. Um, retaining than you normally are you know it's probably not a great time to be squeezing into your you know kind of skinny jeans for example but you know generally that fluid goes straight away when you get your next period and you're back to normal Uh, so really it's it's not an extreme experience it can be stressful because the timing is very critical so 
you know, you've got to do this, then you've got to go, go do this. And the timing, you have to take medication at the same time every day. So, but we try and educate, um, beforehand so that we really, um, have a confident, you know, kind of patient who knows exactly what they're doing and, and knows what's going to happen next. And, and the process is very well supported, you know, by our team, you know, it, I, you know, said it takes a village to, to raise a child. It takes a team to do IVF. It's a team sport. So, the members of my team, when I support my patients, you know, I've got my amazing nurses who are brilliant at supporting my patients. You know, we have a pharmacy who has to supply us with the medication. You know, we have blood collectors who do our blood tests for us. We have our, um, you know, our hospital team for the day of the egg collection. You know, we have our scientists. You know, these are all people involved in, in, you know, kind of what seems like a simple personal thing. So there's a cast of not thousands, but there's a cast of tens, um, working yeah. to make sure that this is, this is going to go well. So, you know, we do work together and, and we do try and make what is quite an intense process as easy as possible. Before I move on to the last question, do you have any other, um, final words of wisdom, you know, as a medical mum yourself or collectively from the medical mums community that you'd like to share with our listeners? Look, I think I think the main thing to reiterate is that it's possible to have a family at any time in your medical training. You can make it work. Um, maybe find a mentor, you know, and, and, you know, if you're at a hospital which is really unsupportive, think about moving to another place. There are workplaces that are more supportive. I certainly experienced that myself, that, you know, certainly I mentioned the women's hospital. I found that out of all the public hospitals I've ever worked at, which is quite a few, that's the most supportive environment and very different from other places I've worked. So no matter how terrific your career ambition is, just remember that to, you know, you're, you're first a human and second a doctor and, you know, you deserve to pay attention to all those other things in your life that matter to you, not just your career. So uh, my final question for you, um, is, as a very busy IVF specialist, um, can you please share one or two things that keep you sane in your crazy busy life? Sure. So, look, I, I'm very into human connection, you know, keeping up with my friends and family and also, you know, kind of having a little bit of time to yourself is always lovely. Um, you know, I love going and getting my nails done. That's my thing. I kind of like I was... Oh, very really nice. colorful colorful fingers that's my little me time where I go and do that myself and kind of listen to a podcast or tune out for a little while that's always nice um making sure that you have fun outside of medicine making sure that you know I come home and, and hug my kids I always write off the school holidays um in my diary my patients know that that I kind of announce my leave of absence just because you know that's just what I do it's just how I, I that's how I roll I spend time with my kids you know, when I go on holidays, I take them with me. You know, they're the things that, you know, kind of mean so much to me. Um, but, you know, I actually i am very lucky, you know, and I would say follow your heart in medicine. You will find a career that's very fulfilling in medicine. I love nothing more than seeing my patients succeed. And, you know, you know, it can be hard and not every IVF cycle works. And I really love when, you know, kind of I can support my patients to get where they're going um, it is important to look after yourself. You can't work seven days a week. You will burn out if you do that. So just um, I would say one thing that you have to acknowledge is that, you know, if you don't look after yourself, you can't look after your patients. 
and you can't look after your family. So, you know, I would say that's one thing that does keep me sane is just taking a little bit of time out to watch the movie I want to watch and to, you know, go for a walk outside during daylight hours and, you know, cuddle my children uh, at the end of the day. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast, Dr. Raylia Lu. My pleasure. Anytime. If you really like that episode, please don't forget to leave a review on iTunes to help a sister out. And don't forget to subscribe to our email list so that you never miss an episode. 